Matthew chapter 7, verse 12 is the text for this morning. The sermon title is The Golden Rule. The Golden Rule. May of 2006, 34-year-old British mountaineer David Sharp set out from his base camp to make his third solo attempt to scale Mount Everest, defying the odds, which the the odds are not in your favor when trying to summit Mount Everest. Defying the odds, he successfully reached the summit, but unfortunately, he ran out of oxygen while descending on his trip back down the face of the mountain. Reports say that as he lay on the side of the mountain dying, more than 40 climbers trekked past his body and continued without offering any assistance. Some say that such oxygen-deprived altitudes uh, create very perilous uh, rescue attempts, and so it's not even safe at times to try to rescue someone at those altitudes. But others say that climbers are just too eager to reach the top and too selfish to help those in trouble. Mount Everest pioneer Sir Edmund Hillary said that he was shocked that dozens of climbers left a British mountaineer to die during their own attempt to scale the world's tallest peak. You say, what is the significance of that story? Well, the significance of that story is this. I was thinking in my study this week, I wonder what would have happened If one of those climbers who passed David as he lay there dying without oxygen on the side of the mountain would have considered, maybe I ought to treat him the way that I would want to be treated. Would that have changed things, perhaps? That's exactly the teaching that Jesus confronts us with this morning. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, which is oftentimes referred to as the golden rule. Jesus gave his disciples, and in giving this teaching to his disciples, subsequently he gave it to us, his disciples, followers of Christ, the secret to fulfilling the entire Old Testament relational regulations. That is to love others and to live for their benefit. To love others and to live in such a way, to act in such a way, to do in such a way, to be in such a way to them is as for their benefit. Jesus is teaching us here in our text this morning. Let us turn our attention there. Let me encourage you to stand if you have the ability. We want to reverence God's word together. Very short text in front of us this morning. This is Matthew recording Jesus' teaching under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. And these are the words that he pens. So, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Jesus' teaching here in this short text is perhaps one of the most widely praised but most vastly unapplied verses in all of Scripture. One of the most widely praised passages or texts, but one that is vastly, vastly unapplied. Martin Lloyd-Jones notes this, people hear the golden rule and they praise it as marvelous and wonderful, as such a perfect summary of the great subject on which Jesus has been teaching. But the tragedy is that having praised it, they fail to implement it. After all, 
the law was not meant to be praised. It was meant to be practiced. Jesus did not preach the Sermon on the Mount in order that you and I might comment upon it, but in order that we might carry it out. Catch that, friends? Jesus did not preach this sermon that we would merely be hearers only, that we would be doers of the word, that we would carry it out, not just to comment on it, but to live it out, to carry it out. Jesus speaks explicitly about this tragedy, and it is a tragedy, capital T, of hearing the word, but not applying it to our lives, just shortly coming up in verses 24 through 27. Jesus says this, we'll be here in just a few weeks. Everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. Proverbs. He who hears these words of mine and does them or puts them into practice or implements them, applies them to his or her life, will be like the wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded upon the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not, Jesus says, put them into practice. He's like a foolish man, void of wisdom, who built his house upon the sand, and when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew, and they will, the house fell, and great was the fall of it. Perhaps one of the most widely praised passages in all of Scripture, and there are others, undoubtedly, but one of the most vastly unapplied texts in all of scripture are Jesus's words to treat others the same way that we want to be treated. Well, how does this text fit into the rest of the sermon on the mount? How does this text, verse 12 here, fit in with the rest of the sermon on the mount? We should notice here that our text begins with, so, you have the ESV, probably in some other translations. You may have a Bible sitting on your lap that begins with, therefore. What's the question we should ask when we come to the word therefore in our Bibles? Yeah, what is therefore, therefore? Okay. Why is so there? Therefore indicates a clear connection between what Jesus is getting ready to say, what is getting ready to proceed from his mouth, and what he has already said in the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, verse 12 The text in front of us this morning is a concluding or a summarizing thought. And friends, concluding thoughts, summarizing thoughts are very, very helpful. It's like when you get to the end of the book and the author does a good job of tying everything up in a sentence or tying everything up in a few short sentences, a paragraph. That's what Jesus is doing here in verse 12. He is summarizing his thoughts. He's concluding his thoughts. But where does the golden rule fit in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, here are a couple of options, I think, as to where uh, verse 12 might fit in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. It's very possible that Jesus' words here, beginning in verse 12, are a conclusion to what he taught in verses 1 through 6. If you just glance back at your Bible there for a minute, you'll notice that those are the verses that dealt with our, our judgment of others, where Jesus instructed us that we are to be discerning, but we are not to be hypercritical. We're not to be fault finders in others. If that's the case, then Jesus' teaching here in verse 12 would certainly help us control our our overly critical spirit and would help us refrain from being hypercritical of others. But it's also possible that verse 12 is a conclusion to verses 7 through 11, just the text that uh, was right before. Remember Jesus said, which one of you? 
If his son asks him for bread, we'll give him a stone. It's a, it's a story that is preposterous here. Or if his son asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to good give, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask of him? And so this would be the argument then, is that God doesn't give us what we deserve. God gives us good gifts. He gives us good gifts in spite of our sinful nature. He deals with us in grace. And so, how we would understand verse 12 then, is that in the same manner, you are to treat your fellow brother in a good way. You are to be and to do good to your neighbor. We've talked about this before, friends. Who is your neighbor? Who's your neighbor? Everyone is your neighbor. Anyone with a pulse is your neighbor. Jesus, and we'll get to this later in our text this morning, but Jesus is not specifically outlining how we as Christians are to treat other Christians. When Jesus says that we are to treat others, that is all-encompassing. We are to treat our neighbor like we would wish to be treated. But it's also possible, here's the third option, that verse 12, along with chapter 5, turn, turn the page back probably for most of you, back to chapter 5 for just a second, and look at verses 16 and 17. It's very possible that Jesus' words in chapter 7, verse 12, our text for this morning, and what Jesus communicated back in chapter 5 Verses 16 and 17 almost serve as bookends, so to speak. Bookends that contain the portion of the Sermon on the Mount that speak about how the king and how his kingdom citizens are to fulfill the law and the prophets. This is what Jesus said there. Look at chapter 5. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, similar language here, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, turn back to our text. Chapter 7, verse 12. Similarly, Jesus says, So, whatever you wish others to do to you, lights, do also for them. For this, again, is the law and the prophets. Very possible that Jesus' words here are, are the conclusion, so to speak, the second bookend that includes all of Jesus' teaching about himself, the king of the kingdom, and his subjects of the kingdom, the citizens of the kingdom, which would be us as believers and how we are to act in righteousness. And so what's the correct answer, you ask? What's the correct answer? Is Jesus concluding verses 1 through 6? Is Jesus concluding verses 7 through 11? Is this the second bookend on Jesus' kingdom teaching here? Which is the right answer? You ready for this? Yes. The right answer is yes. I think they're all the correct answer. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12 is the exclamation point, so to speak, on his lengthy teaching to this point. He's drawing the line and putting the dot underneath it that sums up all of his teaching to this point. But it does seem to follow in light of just the immediate preceding context that if God knows how to be good and to do good to us, then we should seek to do good and to be good to others. 
Remember, it was our Heavenly Father that causes the, the sun to rise and the rain to fall, both on the righteous and on the unrighteous, the just and the unjust. And He is our model for how we are to act towards other people. If our Heavenly Father is gracious and kind and benevolent, does not treat us as our sins deserve, in a moment-by-moment practical sense. All sin will be treated as it deserves on the final day. Not one sin will go unaccounted for. Okay? There is a day when the righteous judge will take the bar. But in a practical sense, God is good, he's kind, he's benevolent. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. The sun rises, the rain falls, food tastes good, the Grand Canyon looks beautiful, uh, family, friends, and all the experiences that come in between those our blessings that are afforded to both believers and unbelievers. And so God is our model here. Jesus' words, though, are very, very unique. They're very, very unique. And you say, now wait a second, it seems like I've heard those words before. And you're right. The words that Jesus spoke here do sound a lot like words that were uttered before Jesus' incarnation, before Jesus took on flesh and stepped into our world and lived among us. This principle of treating others how you would want to be treated existed before Jesus spoke these words here in chapter 7, verse 12. We see similar language found throughout religious and philosophical writing. Uh, the, the, the Jewish rabbi Hillel, for instance, said this, What thou would not wish for thyself, do not do to thy neighbor. For that's the whole law. The ancient Athenian philosopher Socrates, and now we're, we're, we're outside of religious writing, we're in philosophical writing now, said this, What stirs your anger when done to you by others, do not do that to others. How about the Chinese philosopher Confucius? Again, we're way outside of the bounds of Scripture now. But this is what he said. He said, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. The Stoics of Jesus' day said, what you do not want to be done to you, do not do to anyone else. But it's interesting. There is a unique difference in what each of these individuals and, and many, many others taught and what Jesus teaches here in verse 12. You see, the interesting thing is is that every statement that was made by other religious leaders, by most, I should probably say, most other religious leaders and most other philosophers, has been taught in the passive passive and negative form. Okay? Track with me for a second. In other words, do not do something bad to others so that you can avoid having bad things done to you. You see, that's the negative, the passive form of the teaching. When we teach it that way, it makes it possible for us to do nothing at all. Think about that for a moment. We teach it in its passive and negative sense. The way that many other religious leaders have taught it, the way that many other philosophers have taught it, 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 it could for us mean that we don't have to do anything. Furthermore, all those statements are self-righteous. So even unbelievers can live under such a law. But Jesus doesn't instruct us to simply refrain from doing bad to others to avoid the repercussions. He challenges us to intentionally do good to others in the same way that you would like them to do good for you. You see, this is the position of love. It's intentional. It's proactive. It does not depend on how another person treats me. I'm treating this person 
believer or unbeliever, in the same way that I would desire to be treated. It's active. It's intentional. It's the position of love. You see, God's standard isn't just avoiding evil, but actively practicing righteousness. That is the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. It's righteous living in action. It's what feet put on righteous living look like. It's where righteous living will take you. It's how righteous living thinks. It's how righteous living speaks. It's how righteous living relates to others. That's the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. And the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount goes even further than that because what it teaches us is that we can never measure up to the law. We can never measure up to its standards. We will always fall short. We will always miss the mark, which is precisely the point that Jesus is trying to drive home. Reason being, because it points us to our need for a Savior. That's the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is that there is a standard, there is a bar, there is a righteous rule to which you are accountable, but you can never measure up. Therefore, I will go to Calvary's cross and I will hang there, naked and alone between two common criminals as a broadcast anthem to the world. My grace, my grace is available to you. Repent and believe. Catch that, friends? Catch that? God's standard isn't just avoiding evil, but it's actively practicing righteousness. And if you look at Jesus' words here, I mean, this is an absolutely sweeping, sweeping statement. Therefore, or so, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets, or the law and the prophets is contained in this simple yet exclamation point statement. It's a sweeping, sweeping, broad statement. You see, the golden rule, it doesn't merely forbid all petty malice and revenge, all cheating and overreaching. It does much, much more than that. Here's what it does, friends. Jesus' words here in verse 12 settle a hundred difficult points which in a world like this are continually arising between men and between women. We're sinful. Sin is at the core of all of our relationships, both with believers and unbelievers. And so Jesus' teaching here prevents the necessity of laying down endless little rule after rule after rule for every specific circumstance and situation and case. Because Jesus' words here sweep the whole debatable ground with one mighty principle. It shows balance and it shows measure by which everyone is to see their duty. You see, friends, Jesus' words here, though it is a simple, concise summary or conclusion statement, though it is the exclamation point on all he has said, it is an absolutely sweeping statement that keeps us from having to lay down endless little minute rules for how do you deal with this? And when this person does this, how do you do this? And how do you think about that? And how do you relate to this person? I mean, we could have rule after rule after rule after rule and law after law after law after law. Jesus sums it all up in one. And he says a thousand difficulties. Nay, a million difficulties. Nay, unnumerous difficulties would reach their conclusion if individuals would just treat others the way that they would like to be treated. 
Why do we struggle then to live out the golden rule? Why do we struggle to live this out? Every single one of us does. For some of us, it may have taken place in the car ride on the way to church this morning. For some of us, it was just yesterday before sunset. For some of us, it'll be when we hop in the car and we head out to lunch today. Why, why is it such a challenge for us to abide by Jesus' teaching here, to treat others in the same way that we wish to be treated? And friends, let me tell you that the answer to that question is not relational. The answer to the question, why do we struggle to live out the golden rule, is not a relational answer. You see, all the great textbooks on ethics and social relationships, they all begin at the wrong starting block when they consider, why can't the world just get along? Why can't individuals just get along? They start at the wrong starting block because they start in the realm of the relational. The answer to the question, friends, why do we struggle so to live out Jesus' teaching here is not relational primarily, it's theological. That's the reason that we struggle to live out Jesus' teaching here. You see, the first statement of the gospel is that we as men and we as women are sinful and perverted, twisted and vile. That's the first statement. That's the opening line of the gospel. You see, the answer to the question is theological before it is relational. If we try to answer the question relationally, well, we'll just change this about the way you think or just change this away about the way you act, but we don't consider the core, the root, the central reason that we war and fight and quarrel. Remember James? Remember James? Why, why are there fights? Why are there quarrels among you? Why, why are there squabbles? Why are there squirmishes? Why do you go after each other? Why do you pick at each other? Why do you fight and quarrel? Is it not because of this? You have desires within you that are at war. You see, the answer to all of our relational problems is first theological. We have to start at the starting block of the fact that the gospel tells us that we're sinful. We don't like that. Which takes me back to my very first thought. Why is the Sermon on the Mount Specifically, Jesus' teaching here, the golden rule, so widely praised but so vastly unapplied because it searches the hearts. It searches the thoughts and the intentions and the motives of men. Not just what you do, but why you do what you do. And sinners don't like that. Sinners don't like that. We must start at the theological starting block when we try to answer the question, why do we struggle? We'll come back to that here in just a few minutes. Let me put a pin in it. We'll let it hang there for a moment and we'll return to it. Let me say a few things here about what Jesus is not teaching in the text. We want to avoid mistakes in applying the golden rule because we want to not only be hearers, we want to be doers. And we want to be right doers of God's words. We want to be right understanders of God's word. We want to avoid mistakes in applying the golden rule. And so we must be clear that what Jesus is not saying here. What is he not teaching in the text? Well, first... The golden rule does not teach that we are to do to others what we would like them to do to us in order that they will do it to us. Catch that? The golden rule does not teach that we are simply to do to others what we would want them to do for us in order that they will do it for us. Okay? 
gets to the area of motive here. The golden rule is an expression of unconditional love. When we do good to others, we are to do it, friends, brothers and sisters, with the expectation of nothing in return. Okay? There is the expectation of nothing in return. Secondly, the golden rule does not teach that we are to treat others the way that they treat us. That's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and Jesus has already taken us to task over that, right? It's that retaliatory, that uh, pull in us, that vindictive nature that's deeply embedded within each one of our hearts. Will you, well, I'll teach you. You treat me that way, here's what I'll do. You speak to me that way, here's what I'll do. Remember? God alone says, vengeance is mine. I will repay my adversary. That is his parking spot. Brothers and sisters, don't park there. Vengeance is not ours. Okay? The golden rule does not teach that we are to treat others the way that they treat us. The golden rule is the opposite of that vindictive spirit that we see operating in the world. And that operates in us at times. So we've got to crucify the flesh. That's how we've got to wake up every morning and, and put to death the old man and put on the new man that's created in the likeness and the image of its maker. Lastly, the golden rule does not teach that we are to treat others the way that they think they should be treated. Track with me here. The golden rule does not teach that we're to treat others the way that they think that they should be treated. What do I mean by that? Well, we all have a tendency, every single one of us, to have a more favorable opinion of ourselves than we do of others. And therefore, because of this inconsistency in being totally objective, it's not a good idea to treat others on the basis of how we think they should be treated. Because at times, in our sinfulness and hard-heartedness of heart, we don't think that other people should be treated in a good way. where do we start? Where do we start when we talk about applying this command here to treat others the way that we would want to be treated? If it's, if it's not a, a relational starting block that we should be at first, it's theological. Let, let me help explain what I mean by that. Where do we start? Well, first, we've got to have a right view of God. We've got to have a right view of God. There are many things that I want to characterize us as a local church. And having a right and high and lofty and exalted view of God is primary on that list. And then we would move right from there to a receiving his word as being sufficient and authoritative. The sufficiency and the authoritativeness of God's word. But the starting block that we start at is one of a high view of God. You see, when we see God as holy and righteous and pure and worthy of honor and all praise, just as we sang this morning, it changes the way that we see ourselves. It resizes us. We begin to understand something. We begin to see something of, of our vileness, our uncleanliness, and our unworthiness. And what's the response? Well, it should produce in us humility, right? Rightly seeing God for who he is ought to humble us to the core. God says of himself, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where's, where's the house you'll build for me, declares the Lord? Paraphrase. What, what can you add to, to me? What can you do for me? 
God goes on and he says, has not my hand made all things, declares the Lord. And then he says, this is the man that I esteem. This is the woman that I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Humility. When I see God for who he is, it resizes me in an instant. And that's a very, very good thing. Because when we're resized, we become less and less preoccupied with our own rights. And that has a whole lot to do with how we treat others. See the connection, friends? When we are preoccupied with our own rights, that will directly influence the way that we treat others, especially when we feel like they have trampled on our rights. And so where do we start? We must start with a high and lofty right view of God. But secondly, we must have a right view of man. Sinclair Ferguson writes this. He says, the the person who sees himself or the person who sees herself as a beggar before the Lord with nothing left to offer but has discovered that he or she is an heir of God's grace will be sufficiently set free from self-centeredness and will then in turn put others first and will treat them in the way that they wish to be treated. You catch that, friends? When we understand that we're all in the same predicament, that we're all in need of the same grace of God, it levels the playing field. I'm not better than you. I think I'm better than you. I'll treat you in a particular way. Let's have a right view of man. Jesus' words here in our text emphasize an incredibly important point. Write this down. Simple. It's just a restatement of what Jesus has already said. But the point is this. It really, really matters how you treat people. It really, really matters how you treat people. You see, Christianity isn't just about your personal vertical relationship with God, but it's also about your horizontal relationships with other people as well. Remember Jesus said in the, in, in the great commandment when he was asked, what is the... What is the foremost of the commandments? What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus replied, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your might. But the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, Christianity isn't just about you and God. It's also very much about uh, your fellowship with other Christians and with the way that you treat the lost world. What Jesus is saying here, the point that he's emphasizing or underscoring here is that the way that we treat people is very, very important. Christianity isn't just about me and God. It is primarily about me and God. But it also has to do with our horizontal relationships, which should be vastly different because of our vertical relationship with God. Notice this too. This command isn't just how we're to treat some people but how we're to treat all people. Matter of fact, look at your Bible there. Jesus says, so or therefore, whatever you wish that others, others, there. It's the word adelphos. just simply means a human being or a man. It just means people in general. In other words, Jesus' words apply to everyone you meet. Again, who is your neighbor? Everyone that has a pulse is your neighbor, and how you treat them is very, very important. There's no one that you know, there is no one uh, with whom you will come into contact 
with which this verse does not apply. Paul said it this way, I would encourage you to memorize, to memorize Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, there's the word again, how do I grow in humility? Well, I have a high and exalted view of God, which resizes me very quickly. But in humility, I'm to count others or to consider others or to think about others as being more significant than yourself. Friends, that is one of the most countercultural statements that has ever been made. We don't come from the womb naturally thinking about the interest of others as being greater than our own. It's me, it's mine, it's a grabbing for and a grasping for and a wrestling for, jockeying for position, being deceitful in the things that we do so that I can rise to the top. Friends, if that's our attitude, let me remind you of John the Baptist's words in John 3. He must become greater, I must become, finish the sentence, less. He must become greater, I must become Less The gospel, friends, the gospel of grace, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ frees you from having to jockey in the world in which you live. Because it already tells you that you have everything. Remember, we've already studied that there's nothing of material value that you own that you can take with you. It all stays behind you. But what is most important, you can take with you. And the gospel tells you that in Jesus Christ, sealed by his blood, indwelt with the Holy Spirit, you already possess it all. And it can never be taken from you. So you don't have to jockey for anything. The gospel frees you from trying to position yourself in the world. The gospel frees you from treating people negatively, in hurtful, vindictive ways. Third, we must be thankful that God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. We must have a right view of God, a high view of God. We must have a right view of man. And then third and lastly here, we must be thankful that God does not treat us as our sins deserve. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible is Psalm 103, 10 simply says he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor does he repay us according to our iniquities. Praise God. Praise God that he does not repay us according to our iniquity, that he does not treat us as our sins deserve. That is the definition of mercy and grace. Right there in clear text in Psalm 103.10. He's gracious and he's merciful to us. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Those are the right starting blocks. Say, how do I begin to live out this teaching? How do I grow in treating others the way that I want to be treated? High view of God, right view of man, and an appreciation and a thankfulness for the fact that God does not treat you and me, friends, as our sins deserve. So what does it look like? Let's try to be practical here. And and literally, we, we we could preach for days upon days upon days upon days, fleshing out what it looks like practically, specifically in our day-to-day lives to live out the golden rule. I just want to give you a handful of thoughts here as to what it looks like to live out the golden rule, which is the opposite of self-centeredness, right? To live out the golden rule means that I'm others-centered in my relationships. Okay? Here are some thoughts for you. Be genuine and honest. Every single one of us, without exception, wants other people to be genuine and honest with us. We want others to be truthful and sincere, to not be hypocritical, 
and not talk behind our backs, to deal with us fairly. We want them to be trustworthy, reliable, full of integrity, if they would keep their word. Friends, are you being that? Are you treating others in a genuine and honest manner? Because it is certainly the way that you and I wish others would treat us. How are we doing there? How are we doing there? How about gentleness? Every single one of us, without exception, wants people to be gentle with us. We want others to be pleasant with us, easy to entreat or approachable, not severe, not harsh. Jesus was always gentle. Jesus said, come, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, he said, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. You'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's gentle. He's gentle. One chapter later in Matthew chapter 12, it was said of Jesus, a, ru- a bruised reed he will not break. Gentleness. Gentleness. Paul challenges us when he says this in Philippians 4 or 5, let your gentleness be evident to all. How are you doing there, friends? We all want others to treat us that way. Are we treating them that way, regardless of how they treat us, remember? Righteous love and action expects nothing in return. How are we doing there? How about graciousness and understanding? There are a couple of areas that we could be growing in. Interesting to note, that verse that I just mentioned in Philippians 4, 5, let your gentleness be evident to all. The word for gentleness there in Philippians 4, 5 was used in other Greek literature to describe a situation where instead of throwing the book at someone, charging them to the fullest extent of the law, if you had the chance, instead, you let them free. Let your gentleness be evident to all. When you could throw the book at someone, when you could charge them to the fullest extent of the law, instead you let them go. Instead you let them free. Gentleness. We might say graciousness. Okay? Every single one of us loves mercy. We're so thankful when it's shown to us, but how quick are we to show it? How quick are we to extend it to others? Okay, now this doesn't mean, when, when, when I say, are you growing in graciousness? Are you growing in understanding? Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we turn a blind eye towards sin. Jesus never, capital N-E-V-E-R, never turned a blind eye toward sin. But he was very quick to show mercy, grace, and forgiveness to a repentant sinner. Take, for instance, the woman who was caught in the act of adultery who could have had the books thrown at her by the hypocritical Pharisees, who, by the way, wanted her stoned right there on the spot. Jesus said, in their presence, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. John writes at this point that all the religious leaders fled like cockroaches to their holes. Gone. Jesus looked at the woman and he said, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no, no one, Lord. And Jesus replied, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. That's graciousness. That's mercy. We love it when other people are gracious and merciful to us. Are we treating others that way? Let me give you three gracious principles here. Be gracious in private. Okay? 
Be gracious in private. That's set a person at ease. Understanding the, the, the way, the tone in which we conversate, the way that we act. Graciousness in private sets a person at ease. It doesn't turn a blind eye towards sin, but it does set a person at ease. Secondly, be gracious in public. That means don't smear a person's sin all around town. And then thirdly, be gracious in prayer. Pray that the person who sins against you will be dealt with by God in the same manner that you would want God to deal with you, mercifully and gracious. Graciousness and understanding. How about kindness? How about being considerate? Are we being those things to other people? Are we demonstrating that to others? Gossip, pettiness, unkindness, jealousy, and envy. You see, all these things are ruled out by Jesus' single statement, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Be thankful. We love it when people are thankful of us. We love it when people appreciate us. Be generous. Be willing to give of your time, your energy, your resources, your counsel. If you're a business owner, treat your employees the way that you would want to be treated. Pay them the way that you would want to be paid. Give them days off in the same way that you would want to be given days off. You see how far-reaching this simple but yet profound statement is? Husbands, treat your wives in that way. Wives, treat your husbands in that way. How about being quick to, to give the benefit of the doubt? Because we're sinful, we're so often suspicious of other people. We question their motives and we put them on trial before we ever know all the facts. We want other people to give us the benefit of the doubt. Treat others in the way that you would want to be treated. How about being patient and long-suffering? That'll conclude the list, but we could go on and on and on and on and on. But patience and long-suffering. An anonymous author penned these words, Love is an attitude. Love is a prayer. For someone in sorrow, a heart in despair. Love is goodwill for the gain of another. Love suffers long with the fault of a brother? Are you patient and long-suffering? Or are you short-fused? Do you explode? Are you easily angered? We don't appreciate it when other people are that way towards us. Treat others in the same manner that you wish to be treated. See how expansive Jesus' words are here? But friends, there's something I want you to understand. Because Jesus' words are vastly applied. I said earlier that Jesus' words are widely praised, they're vastly unapplied. They are vastly unapplied in the correct way. One of the greatest dangers and one of the ways that the, that the golden rule is wrongly applied so often is that the golden rule is mistaken for the gospel. How many times have you heard a person when asked, how do you know you're a Christian? Do you know for sure that you're going to heaven, reply saying, yes, I'm a pretty good person and I try to do good to others. You see, let me take you back to a statement that I made when we first opened the text this morning. Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount decimate us. They show us how far we miss the mark. They show us the graveness of our failure. They show us our inadequacy. They show us that we cannot meet the measure of the standard. And so if a person mistakes the golden rule for the gospel and they seek to be justified by obedience to the golden rule, they 
will only be condemned. The golden rule can never save you because you can never meet its expectations. Jesus, friends, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus was the only one who perfectly obeyed the golden rule. And that's why he could walk to Calvary's cross and hang and die there for us, the innocent for the guilty, the righteous for the unrighteous. Okay? Please do not mistake the golden rule for the gospel. Having said that, the golden rule can't be lived out apart from the gospel. In other words, the golden rule is not natural to us. But we already mentioned, we don't come forth from the womb naturally thinking to the interest of others. Again, I would encourage you to memorize Philippians 2, 3, and 4. We come out of the womb selfish, grasping, jockeying. We're born sinners. Psalm 51, right? David said, surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. We need a new heart. We must be born again to even live out the teaching that Jesus is calling us to here. And even when we've been born again, we are in moment by moment need of his grace to even live it out. An unconverted person cannot live out the golden rule. And even as believers, we need God's grace to carry it out moment by moment, day by day, hour by hour, year by year, Decade after decade. Let me make just a couple of concluding thoughts here. Living out the golden rule will cost you, my friends. Don't check out on me here in the last couple of minutes. Living out the golden rule will cost you. It's expensive. It's costly. Notice that Jesus didn't say again, treat people the way they treat you. No. You see, people may treat you badly. People may treat you poorly, but that's not the way that Jesus tells us to treat others. Instead, he tells us, treat them the way that you want to be treated. And there is a massive, there is a gulf of difference there. We're to treat others as we would want them to treat us, not as they treat us. And this is where rubber meets the road. It's easy to treat a person nice. It's easy to treat a, e- easier to treat a person kindly. It's easier to offer a, a courteous disposition. It's easier to be thankful for and appreciative and gracious and merciful to a person who is all those things or to a person who's at least growing in all those things where the rubber meets the road and things become very, very difficult and costly is when you are called to exercise those same acts of righteous love to a person who does not reciprocate them. That's when it becomes very, very difficult and costly. Living out the golden rule will cost you. Because there are some people who have ill will towards you. People who don't think highly of you, don't love you. And friends, let me say this. Don't give them any reason to continue in that. Sometimes people don't like us. Sometimes people don't treat us well because we give them good reason not to. You can fill in the blanks there. Lastly, let me conclude here. Jesus says that this teaching here, it summarizes all the law and the prophets. So, or therefore, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also for them, for this is the law and the prophets. 
Basically, Jesus' teaching here summarizes what has been spelled out everywhere else in the Bible. It's the teaching of the second half of the Ten Commandments. Think about it here for a second. Do to others, or act to others, relate to others in the way that you wish they would do and act and relate toward you. That's the second half of the Ten Commandments. That would encompass honor your father and mother. How you doing there, young people? Honoring mom and dad. Okay? That's not committing adultery, not stealing, not bearing false witness, not coveting your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's male servant or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. That is what it means to treat others in the way that you would want to be treated. It's the teaching of Exodus 22 concerning the way that you're to treat a stranger uh, when you meet them. It's the, it's the teaching of Exodus 23 that if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey don't, going astray, that you're to bring it back to them. Did you catch that? Not your friends. If you see your enemy's donkey or oxen going astray, you're to bring it back to them. Why? Because you would hope they would do the same to you. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus' words here are a restatement of Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you were to distill the law and the prophets down, if you were to boil them down to their very essence, this is what they would teach. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. How are we doing there, friends? How are we doing? It's challenging. It puts every single one of us in the crosshairs. How are we doing 